0: you're listening to an airwave media podcast
1: yeah, oh, I am a Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are joined by a special guest to discuss a controversial, excuse me, controversial and often misunderstood topic that is rife with misinformation and misconceptions, opioids and the opioid epidemic. So we're joined by Dr. Ryan Marino, who's a medical toxicologist, emergency physician, and addiction medicine specialist and assistant professor in the departments of emergency medicine and psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. He is active in clinical practice, teaching and research and runs an addiction bridge clinic at Cleveland Medical Center. His interest in poisonings and substance use disorder began during his training leading up to the early years of the opioid epidemic, in particularly hard-hit regions of Western Pennsylvania, where he completed medical education, residency, and fellowship training at the University of Pittsburgh, and worked both clinically and on substance use research at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center before returning home to Northeast Ohio and Case Western. The intersection of his three specialties is uniquely suited to the topics of drugs and the effects that they have. His research and advocacy work focuses on better understanding and best practice medical management of substance use disorders, reducing barriers for both patients and providers in treating substance use disorders, and combating stigma and misinformation. Outside of addiction work, he's also active in identifying and addressing social determinants of health and advocating for patients who have been traditionally overlooked by the medical establishment. And we'll link to all of this on our show notes, but you can find him on Twitter or X at Ryan Marino and on YouTube at Ryan MD. All right, so let's, let's get into it by setting the stage. So it's estimated that 60 million people struggle with the addictive effects of opioids globally, and more than 100,000 people die every year of opioid overdose, many of them with fentanyl, an analgesic drug that is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin or morphine. Certain opioids are considered some of the most addictive substances known. Now, the high prevalence of opioid use disorder has led to an array of health and social problems. And the U.S. has seen record high rates of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, more children entering foster care, rising heroin and fentanyl use, outbreaks of injection-related infectious diseases, and a decline in workforce participation in areas with relatively high rates of opioid prescribing. And in fact the CDC has aptly described the crisis as the quote worst drug overdose epidemic in US history. So Andrea Ryan, I'm not sure who to who to turn to here because I know you could you could both do this, but can we start with maybe a little background, the history, the classes of opioids and opiates? Maybe that's a good starting point. Yeah, sure. And
0: first, you know, Ryan, we're super thrilled to have you here. We wouldn't want to tackle this topic that is often filled with controversy and, and has often been used as a a talking point for kind of the erosion of trust and regulatory agencies with, with anyone else. Um. So so very excited to kind of hear your insights from a clinical and a research perspective. Maybe I'll just kind of set the stage with some of the history, and then I'm going to hand it over to Ryan to kind of dig into to some of the pharmacology and toxicology. So so opioids are substances that are derived from opiates and opium. Really, it all comes back to opium, which is which is a poppy. Um, it's a flowering plant. Papaver somniferum, which is the opium poppy. This has been used in human history for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Opium is harvested by basically cutting the green seed pods of the opium plant and a, a latex or an oil kind of is secreted. And then once it dries, it's, it's harvested and, and collected from that. So, Historically, opium itself, kind of un, unadulterated opium, was used for a variety of medical indications, including pain relief, as well as surgical an, analgesia. Um, it was also used for for asthma, for relaxing muscles, for for eyesight related issues, GI issues, and we'll get into some of the GI related side effects of of opioids. Um, but of course, things like sleep and sedation, and and you know, stopping diarrhea and 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 other sorts of things. And opium has been used in human history across Asia and Europe, dating back to the Neolithic period. You know, this, the ancient Sumerians were writing about it. They called it Holgiel, the plant of joy. Um, Hippocrates uh, wrote about it in 400 BC when, when he was describing using it for sleep. And there's there's many kind of ancient medical texts that document the use of opium, um, including Avicenna's Five volumes. Canon of Medicine, where he describes, um, the use of opium for a variety of, of medical uses during, um you know, the, the early AD years. And this moved into India and China starting in around 900 AD. And so there's there's quite a bit of extensive history of opium kind of moving across Europe and Asia. But when you kind of move into the modern usage of it, it, it probably starts with um, Paracelsus, who was a Swiss physician. And he was attributed to kind of reintroducing opium into Western Europe. and it was originally called laudanum. And I'm sure a lot of folks have heard this term, but laudanum originally was just kind of this catch-all for like medications. But then this guy, this British guy or English guy back then, Thomas Sydenham, he kind of formalized the recipe for laudanum. And this was 10% opium dissolved in in alcohol, ethanol, which is drinking alcohol. And um, there was one of his recipes that he published in 1669 that was a combo of opium and red wine and saffron and clove and cinnamon. And then from there, other opioids and opiates kind of emerged. So the first um, semi-synthetic or kind of derivative of opium was morphine. This was synthesized and extracted in 1804. Um, And then from there, um, heroin was extracted and synthesized. And those are what we call the opiates, which are kind of our natural derivatives of opium. And then from there, we also have our semi or fully synthetic opioids, including um, oxycodone, hydrocodone, hydromorphone oxymorphone, fentanyl, methadone, and so on. So, Ryan, that's a very brief overview of the history, but can you kind of dig into some of the mechanisms of action and some of the key differences between this very broad class of, of chemical substances?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a great overview. And I think the most important thing, too, in the historical context is just that opioids have been ubiquitous in human civilization, like, forever, when it comes to the phrases opiates and opioids, people get very confused and they're used kind of interchangeably. They're often used incorrectly, even. But if anyone has any doubts, opioid is always the right way to describe it um, because an opioid is just anything that acts on an opioid receptor in your body, whereas the opiates are the things that are specifically in the poppy plant. And so any of those drugs that we're using today, with the exception of probably morphine, is going to be, not be an opiate. Um, so opioid is always right. There are some, I mean, variable effects that these compounds can have, and some of the chemicals in the poppy plant are even used for like non opioid related indications. Um, There's one compound that's used as a vasodilator, there's another one that is reported to cause like significant stimulant effect to the point of convulsions that looks like strychnine poisoning. And even like dextromethorphan, over the counter cough medicine is technically an opioid, although most of its effects are not mediated through your opioid system. The big differences, though, in terms of the pharmacology of the opiates and opioids, are when it comes to the more natural ones that are more structurally related to morphine and codeine, those cause a lot of histamine release in your body. And so people get a lot of more allergies to that. But even if you don't have an allergy, people will get a lot of itching. Um, and it can drop your blood pressure when we use it medically. And so like giving a big IV push of morphine can drop someone's blood pressure just because of that. And so one of the reasons fentanyl became one of the more preferred medicines is because as a fully synthetic opioid, it doesn't look anything like morphine. Um, it does not have that same effect. And so fentanyl is actually the most ubiquitously used opioid in like all of medicine worldwide and has been for a number of years. Um, And I think people are also surprised by that because it's not just used for pain. It's something that is used very widely for things like sedation, um, for people who are critically ill, people who are on ventilators, that kind of thing.
0: That's a great point. And and I think, you know, it it kind of opens the door for, okay, let's talk about, you know, these have been used medically because they do have therapeutic effects, Um, but because of some of the properties of them, how strongly they bind to these receptors and the systemic responses to them, they are also susceptible to being misused, abused, and also um, becoming addicted and or physically dependent on them. So Ryan, can you kind of walk us through, you know, some of the key differences between physical dependence and addiction and some of the challenges with using medications that do have a therapeutic benefit, but also do have these kind of unintended or undesirable consequences?
2: The opioids, there's a few different classes of opioid receptors And the most important one to know about is the mu opioid receptors. And so, kind of, the majority of effects that we think of for opioids are through the mu receptors. And so, that is the pain control analgesia, um, as well as the kind of like respiratory depression risk of overdose. Um, And those also mediate the like reward effects. People feel good. You get like a rush, there's dopamine release, all of that stuff. And so, those are kind of the things that we look for in terms of what makes something addictive. And the neurological mechanisms behind addiction are still not well understood, uh, honestly. But um, things that tend to like cross your blood-brain barrier faster, give you that quick rush feeling, and then have dopamine release definitely have more potential, as well as things that cause physiologic dependence. And so you mentioned the difference between dependence and addiction, and Dependence is really your body just gets used to something, and then when you take it away, it doesn't feel good. And so, a good example is I mean, people who drink caffeine um, frequently, if they stop, they're going to have a headache, be irritable, that kind of thing. And the same with like nicotine someone who smokes, even if they want to stop smoking, they don't want cigarettes anymore, um, they're probably going to get irritable. And that's just because of like the dependence that your body has. The difference between addiction. Um, is that the use of the substances is causing some sort of harm in, in your life. And so you're using despite harms to yourself. And so this could be, I mean, like missing work, getting in a car accident, to kind of having health effects, that kind of thing as well. And so I mean, like alcohol is a good example here where people will drink despite, I mean, getting very, very sick from it, having serious health problems. And so that's a good example of kind of addiction or a substance use disorder. And for opioids, there is a really high rate of dependence. Like most people who take them long term will end up with physiologic dependence and so have withdrawal. Um, But for the majority of people who use opioids, they do not end up with addiction. Um, Although compared to like other substances, rates of addiction are, are much higher just because they have a lot of those kind of very desirable effects.
0: This also opens the the question of regulation, right? So historically, before, I guess, modern era and opioid use, morphine and heroin were used in medical practices, right? And now these are illegal and, you know, there's, there's, criminal punishment, you know, if you're caught using or possessing. Um, But there's other opioids like our oxycodone, our hydrocodone, our hydromorphone, you know, these, these, some of the name brands that may ring a bell are are Percocet and Oxycontin, and obviously there are generics. But obviously a lot of these act on similar receptors in the body. And so, you know, there obviously are overlap in use and misuse of these because, you know, say an individual um, is prescribed a legal but controlled opioid for a legitimate medical indication, and then they develop a physical dependence on this or an addiction. And then, you know, their medical indication is no longer there, but because they have this dependence on it, they're seeking... An alternative source and and this is kind of really where I think the the current opioid epidemic really gets messy. Can you speak to a little bit about some of the regulations and some of the implications before we really get into kind of the current um, state of the opioid epidemic? As controlled
2: substances these are heavily monitored um, by the DEA. People have to have special licenses, you have to give the indication for why you're prescribing for a pharmacist to even fill this. There are now drug monitoring databases set up throughout the country, and we could really get into the weeds talking about kind of some of these other things that have popped up, um, and the DEA as well, because of these are controlled substances, gets to set how many can even be made um, in the United States every year. And so, like during early twenty twenty, when the there were a lot of people very sick on ventilators from the pandemic. We actually had a lot of shortages of opioids because no one was prepared for the amount that we were going to need. In terms of kind of prescribing, there was a lot of prescribing that began in like the 90s and early 2000s, and that was considered this like period of of overprescribing, maybe the first wave of the opioid epidemic. I would argue that it actually goes back even further. And if you go back to like the post Civil War period, after morphine had been popularized, a lot of businesses, because it was not a controlled substance at that time, were just selling products with opium, morphine, laudanum um, to people for like having trouble sleeping. Is your baby crying? Um, do your teeth hurt? Uh, do you, are your nerves bothering you? All that kind of thing. And so, I mean, there were huge rates of the very non medical use of opioids back then. Which led to the development of heroin, which was supposed to be the cure for morphine addiction. And it definitely cured morphine addiction because it was way better. I mean, that led to kind of prohibition in the United States, but we never saw heroin use really ever drop. Um, and we never saw this non medical, what people call like recreational opioid use, never really changed much. And so, a lot of things have happened since then and despite the fact that we have all these regulations in place and all of that, today we're having more overdose deaths than ever before. So it's a little hard to kind of tease out like what works, what's good, what's not. Obviously making these available commercially through like corporate interests wasn't good. Uh, having people be over prescribed, having all of these prescriptions out there wasn't good. Um, but Still, we're missing something here.
1: So, Ryan, you—you you already just kind of touched on something that we wanted to—to to pick your brain about, which is this idea that there are sort of three distinct waves of opioid uh, overdose deaths. So, I'll just um, restate this, but it sounds like maybe you—you you don't think it's quite as clear cut as has uh, been presented. And really, I think the goal of this is that people are trying to understand like the root cause of the epidemic. And there's a whole lot of finger pointing as to who's responsible, right? So ultimately, um, I'm hoping that we can move this conversation to understand or at least start the discussion um, about causes of the crisis that we're currently facing. So basically, so a lot of people say that this crisis started in the mid-1990s when um, OxyContin was uh, promoted by Purdue Pharma and approved by the FDA, and that triggered the first wave of deaths linked to the use of legal prescription opioids. And then came a second wave of deaths from the heroin market that expanded to attract already addicted people. And then more recently, this third wave of deaths has arisen from the illegal synthetic opioids like fentanyl, as you said. And, you know, in addition to the crushing health burden of these preventable deaths. As you said, Ryan, you know there are millions more who are affected by related problems, including homelessness, joblessness, family disruption, and a lot more. So can you just sort of talk through these different waves? Um, I, it sounds like already you said that you think it may have started even before this this first wave and then let's maybe move the discussion to what we think might be driving uh, this this crisis.
2: Yeah, I think the three waves kind of framework is, is useful to look at what's going on now and what has happened kind of in like our lifespan in the past like 30, 40 years um, and, and why we're at such a, having such a significant problem. But yeah, I do think this is something that has been going on longer and kind of the underlying like policy failures that are the root cause here are things that have been kind of just repeated over and over again. And so, what we saw with these three waves, like you said, the first wave was kind of over prescribing death. And one thing that people kind of seem to miss is that this wasn't just the people who maybe they had a sprained ankle and they got a prescription for OxyContin, which sounds excessive. And today that would never happen, I would hope. But the people who got that and, and took it normally, most of them did not end up with like addiction problems, any of this. The real problem was that. There was no good oversight, and these companies were pushing people to prescribe these pills and pill mills showed up. These were clinics that did' not keep any records. People would fly in on chartered jets from out of state, get tons of prescriptions for a month supply, pay cash. There's no records. And the intent all along was to sell these on the street. It wasn't ever for someone to take home and use. Um, and certainly there's plenty of stories I've had plenty of patients I've talked to who, got started because like their grandma had an extra bottle of oxycontin or whatever um, and that that's definitely the case and there were people who were put on medicine for i mean maybe their their chronic neuropathic pain that, that shouldn't have been on chronic opioids and, and ended up with addiction as well but that was definitely the minority um, and the largest amount of these opioids that was entering the market was through like specifically black market intention and kind of the intention for dealing drugs And so, a lot of people even switched over from heroin at the time to just buying OxyContin because it was so easy to get on the street. And so, that's why we saw big increases in deaths from prescription meds. Um, And then, you do have to mention, I mean, the fact that the pharmaceutical companies pushed these very hard. Um, I mean, they did a lot of things that that were very bad um, and criminal. And um, we've learned a lot, I think, in the years since, I hope. But again, like at the end of the day, can you really blame the corporations who are trying to push a very desirable product for trying to sell it when we have a very capitalist, corporatized healthcare system? Um, And if we're not going to do anything to kind of address that, the only way you can kind of make money as a pharmaceutical company is to get your prescription prescribed and get people to want to be on it. So there's, there's definitely some more nuance there. But so, with kind of the pushback to prescribing, not wanting someone with like chronic toe pain to have a 12 month supply of fentanyl lollipops at home, um, prescriptions started to decrease. And so people switched to heroin. And in kind of the early 2000s, there was actually an increase in heroin use, which doesn't happen very much in kind of the last like 150 years. Heroin use rates have, well, like 120 years, I guess. Heroin use rates really haven't increased other than like after the Vietnam War when a lot of soldiers brought back kind of heroin use from Southeast Asia and then the early 2000s. Um, and some of that was people switching from pills to heroin because then it became harder to get pills, easier to get heroin, but also probably something to do with kind of like economic despair, like the horrible events happening around the world, everything that's been going on since 2000s, um, which Again, I'll try not to get into the weeds here, but uh, heroin was very easy to obtain. A lot of people were using it. I remember that was like when I was starting to be in medicine and it was just surprising because like everyone was on heroin Um, and you get this idea from Hollywood that it's like the lowest of the low.
0: Heroin chic, right? Yeah,
2: but it was like everyone. I mean, suburban housewives, grandmas, um, you name it. And then the heroin supply was effectively destroyed by the United States, who, because heroin was illegal. Lots of people were using heroin. There was lots of heroin entering the U.S. And so this primarily in the U.S. meant northern Mexico, where there was a lot of poppy fields. Um, and so getting back to kind of poppy plants, these require good temperatures, lots of sunlight, lots of land to cultivate. Um, and so if you take that out of the equation, there's not many places in the U.S. where you food like, very easily or successfully grow a lot of poppies. Um, you take that out of the equation, then what's left? Um, it's much easier to make fentanyl. Fentanyl is fully synthetic. You don't need any land. You don't need any sunlight. You don't need any any weather conditions. Um, and I mean, fentanyl is something that an individual without any chemistry background could could make at home in like a big plastic bucket. Uh, I've had people tell me how to do it, um, and so it makes sense that this kind of showed up and replaced heroin. And so that was the third wave, and what we're still seeing as kind of these astronomically increased overdose deaths, where you went from having thousands of overdoses one day from heroin to now tens of thousands from fentanyl. Um, and it's just because it's so much more potent. And to get into kind of the potency, if you think of like the heroin that was sold on the street comes as powder for the most part in a little bag. Um, It would be about 50% pure, and each bag would have about like 50 milligrams of heroin, give or take. And I'm kind of using like easy numbers here, so it might not be totally accurate. But if you think that someone would get 50 milligrams of heroin in a bag, they know how much they use, um, and people do use large, large amounts. But so to go to fentanyl, which is 50 times more potent, that would be like one milligram of fentanyl in a bag of 100 milligrams. And so, a 1% difference would be 100% more drug. And so, it's very easy when you're talking about kind of the black market, the way that these drugs are measured out and all of that stuff, how they're transported, everything. Um, It's not the same as like a regulated pharmaceutical product. And so, very easy to get kind of differences in where a few percentage points in your heroin wouldn't probably be noticeable one way or the other if you're getting less than 50 milligrams, more than 50 milligrams you're probably not going to have an issue. But fentanyl, it's just an astronomical difference, and you can get exponential increases very easily. And nowadays, I mean, this has changed so much in the past few years, which is another problem with fentanyl. It's changed the way people do drugs, the way people respond to drugs, because it has kind of different effects. And so now, I mean, you can get 10% fentanyl in a bag, um, and people are having to use kind of really, really high doses to just maintain not being in a state of withdrawal all the time so that is i mean in addition to kind of the fact that it's an increased risk of overdoses it makes it very difficult to treat uh opioid use opioid withdrawal all the things that go along with it um things have just changed so much in a very short
0: time. Yeah. I mean, it, it's certainly, um, you know, a, a very disheartening and 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 tragic picture, um, you know, especially because, you know, a lot of individuals who kind of fell prey to this, um, you know, it was really through no fault of their own. Right. As you kind of spoke to this, Ryan. And and, you know, I think I think the big TLDR is that there's there's a lot of Missteps. There's a lot of failures, that there's multiple systems that have kind of played a role in this. And and even if we're talking about kind of the current era of the opioid epidemic, certainly the abuse and or misuse um, really started well before this and through the initial use and ease of access to heroin and morphine and so on. But maybe we can talk very quickly about OxyContin because OxyContin is kind of top of mind for everybody when they think about the opioid epidemic, because it really is Um, exemplifying a lot of those missteps and certainly got a lot of public attention through lawsuits and and legal issues and you know several tv shows about it but but ultimately you know so so oxycontin was an opioid oxycodone a name brand version that was released by purdue pharma um and it was it was introduced or approved by fda in 1996 and purdue really aggressively marketed it um They were actually able to grow their revenue from 48 million in 1996 to 1.1 billion in just four years. And part of this is because while the FDA approves the use or or approves medications and medical interventions for use, um, they're really limited in, in what they can do. After approval, so they have very limited oversight in any marketing or promotion by those companies. Um, and so Purdue actually launched this this very strategic marketing campaign where they would um, create these like pain management trainings and these pain management symposiums, and they would pay and recruit healthcare providers, clinicians to speak at them around the country, um, primarily in Florida and Arizona and California. There were like over five thousand healthcare providers, so pharmacists and, and physicians and nurses, and these were you know paid and and swanky and you know sh- they were schmoozing in them, and a lot of the the messaging was around because this wasn't the first opioid that was approved, but the messaging was it was less addictive, it was more effective, it had a better safety profile, it could be used for even mild to moderate pain, so your patients who maybe. You know, opioids weren't an indication for a sprained ankle or toe pain, maybe OxyContin was the way to go. And a lot of the physicians didn't necessarily know any better, but it also opened the door to this, this pill mill phenomenon where you had physicians who were doing things that were not uh, guided by medicine and evidence, and they were essentially over-prescribing or prescribing to people who didn't have a legitimate need because they were going to then sell it on the street um, and so it, it was very multifactorial. and and certainly, I think there have been some physicians who have come out and said, you know we 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 have prescribed, we have overprescribed opioids. Um, you know, we but but for the most part, the, the this is well intentioned, right? We want to help our patients, right? Our patients are suffering. um but but do we really need to prescribe them sixty pills when, 30 pills would have been okay? Or do they need, you know, 20 pills when five would have been okay? I mean, personally, even I, I mean, I've had a a handful of surgeries over the years and including one for, um, it was colorectal surgery and I, and and they're offering, you know, do you want Percocet? And I was like, no, like that causes constipation. I absolutely do not want something that's going to cause constipation after colorectal surgery. But a lot of, you know, even like post-operative pain for for mild surgeries can be managed with acetaminophen and Tylenol in combination and things like that and so you know we're seeing a shift away from that but in the 90s and the early 2000s I think a lot of clinicians they didn't realize that the information they were being provided was was necessarily inaccurate right so what was happening is that you know FDA has limited control over these very aggressive marketing campaigns Purdue Pharma is making lots of money. Their reps are getting huge bonuses by pushing this and targeting a lot of underserved communities who are maybe more susceptible. They don't have equitable access to health care. And then, of course, you have the, the black market for these pills because, again, they're technically legal. So if you're found in possession of them, perhaps the, the criminal justice penalty is lower than if you were found in possession of heroin or something else. And the other thing that I think we we certainly have to talk about is, yes, this is a capitalistic society, right? So there, there, there's incentive and, um, you know, companies can influence policy, right? They can influence politicians, individual politicians. Um, and so it's this convergence of all of these factors where there maybe isn't a single person to blame, but there need to be maybe better regulatory checkpoints in place to ensure that, um, you know, these sorts of issues don't continue to happen.
2: If anyone's interested in learning more about like the pill mills, there's this great free documentary online called the Oxycontin Express that I don't even think it's that long, but just does a really good job kind of showing what was going on in this time and the market that came out for Oxycontin.
1: That's so interesting. We'll have to link to that in our show notes. Um, so just one thing, and I, we, we sort of, we did touch on it, but Ryan, Andrea and I, we talk a lot about vaccines on our page and on our podcast. And a lot of people will say they refuse to get the vaccines because they're FDA approved and they don't trust anything that the FDA touches or approves and a lot of the times they'll a lot a lot of times they'll point to the opioid crisis as like a total FDA failure and it leads to this blanket mistrust of the FDA. So what would you say to those people who feel that way?
2: So I mean there's some legitimate points there but the problem is the FDA has become kind of a like toothless organization that cannot do any sort of enforcing um, and that's because a lot of these like, corporate interests have had their way in kind of getting rid of regulations and changing the market. And so, I mean, the FDA used to be very effective at all of this stuff, and, and they are really kind of like kneecapped at this point where they, they can't do much. Once something is approved and it's out there, uh, they have to show evidence of significant harms and wrongdoing and, and all of that kind of stuff. And for like, a very understaffed agency, that now, because of funding cuts, is also reliable on don- or relying on donations from a lot of these pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of limitations in place, so I think if people care, uh, we could you know, try to strengthen the FDA and kind of give them. I don't want to say like expand their authority, um, but give them kind of the the authority that they were supposed to have when the FDA was started all all these years ago.
0: Yeah. Empower them to do some of the post-approval regulation instead of just pre-approval regulation.
2: And to get approved, too, as like a new formulation of oxycodone, the steps you have to meet are not very hard because oxycodone is already an approved drug. Um, And so for things like that, it kind of makes sense where we see things that it's like, why is this Being approved, why is this entering the market? There was a fentanyl analog that got approved a number of years ago, I think like 2018, and it was even more potent than fentanyl. And many people pushed back on the FDA why is this being approved? It turned out the company had done a lot of shady advertising and stuff as well. um, And it's kind of like the same story where we maybe need to give the FDA a little more oversight into what's going on, especially if we are having these be like for profit companies that are then. Doing direct to consumer advertising, that kind of thing. I mean, Purdue Pharma made OxyContin plushies back in the 90s. So, it's just kind of crazy the things that have been allowed to happen.
0: We talked about um you know the FDA and the the regulatory process and some of the history on a on a past episode um uh, but I think you know the the vision of the FDA you know as being kind of this all controlling entity is really not the full story. You know so we hope that people will understand that you know there's there's a lot of scientists who are doing everything they can but you know once things get approved a lot of a lot of that is is really out of our control and if we want to improve the safety of these sorts of medications particularly those that are high risk of of becoming addictive or dependent they need to have that power in order to look at regulating it beyond just the initial approval. I want to talk about, you know, from your perspective, because you're working with patients, you know, on a daily basis about, you know, some some tangible action items that we can implement to combat this this situation, which is which is still ongoing, right? It's not it's not over with, right? The opioid epidemic is ongoing, and I think you know certainly we saw an exacerbation of it um, during the COVID pandemic, and a lot of that is because of mental health issues, right? And so you know they're not necessarily hand in hand, but a lot of people who have mental health issues often turn to self medicating through opioids or, or other uh, illicit substances, and that's particularly the case if they don't have equitable access to health um and including mental health care and so you know I think there's been thankfully some increased attention to this and there was the Stanford Lancet commission in 2022 they kind of pre- propose some action items along with other task forces and expert agencies to help tackle the opioid crisis. So, so Ryan, can you kind of walk us through, you know, we talked about drug regulation and empowering the FDA to do some of this post approval. So that's kind of, you know, number 1, but what else do we really need both Healthcare provider-wise, general public-wise, you know, societal-wise, to, to really combat this?
2: The biggest thing, I think, I mean, is just remembering that this is, like, such a complex and nuanced topic, and so it's not, like, fentanyl bad. Um, like, that that isn't going to solve anything. Fentanyl is, like, one of the most valuable things we use in medicine, and the demonization of fentanyl over recent years, I've had people with, like, broken bones sticking out of their skin... Telling me, oh, I don't want fentanyl. That's what kills people. That kind of thing. Um, and so, there's definitely a harm there. Uh, and so, remembering that there's a ton of nuance here, and also probably that fentanyl showed up because we were so effective at getting rid of other opioids, we just kind of made the problem worse. So our approach so far has kind of reminded me of like that children's story, the old lady who swallowed the fly, where she kept like swallowing something bigger to eat the fly and ended up <laughs> swallowing a horse. And so this is it's something that's going to need a lot of work. There's no easy solution and there's no like single solution. The number one reason that people use these non-medical opioids is actually for treatment of pain and I think the way we like treat pain in this country and even just access to healthcare which is probably why why people have a lot of pain in the first place. Like one great example is I mean, insurance companies won't pay for physical therapy, but they'll reimburse for a prescription. So it's much easier to get someone on a prescription than it is for something that's probably actually going to help them much more. And so those kind of things are definitely somewhere to start in terms of the way healthcare is accessed. People who can't access healthcare, I mean, if you have painful conditions, it's much easier to go on the street and you can buy a fake pill that's full of fentanyl um, and that's going to take away the pain for, for a while. Uh, and if you can't afford to go anywhere else to get anything else done, then that's kind of like your only option, and that that makes sense to me. I, I would do the same in that situation. In terms of the drugs we have, I think remembering that this kind of like criminalization only approach isn't working. So regardless of how people feel about like street drugs and whether they should be legal or not, it hasn't worked so far. We've had prohibition of opioids for a hundred years now. And we're seeing now with them confiscating more and more fentanyl that we're seeing other things show up, like the the opioids are po- perhaps even more potent than fentanyl, um, and things like xylazine, which isn't even an opioid, um, and so there's no like antidote for it. it. It's much harder to treat in terms of overdoses and withdrawal and addiction and all of that kind of stuff. So we're definitely again kind of swallowing another animal here uh, and, and then ending up with another problem. Um, and so people, I do know most of my patients have said they didn't want fentanyl. They never chose it. They would rather go back to heroin. but at this point, people actually do know they're getting fentanyl. Um, they do intentionally use it. like this is something that happens. And so we have to remember that too. There's always going to be some people who are using opioids non-medically. If this goes back 7,000 plus years. I mean, it was one of the first cultivated plants in, in all of human history. So that's going to happen regardless of whether we're effective at trying to eliminate everything everywhere all the time. Someone's still going to find a way to use it, uh, and we can make them safer. So things like Narcan, naloxone, I think like everyone should have. It's over the counter. It should be in every first aid kit in every public space. That effectively reverses every known opioid that we have. Certainly, there are other effects in overdoses that people don't respond right away. But this idea that maybe Narcan doesn't work for fentanyl or more synthetic opioids is is not true at all. So people should use that, um, and it's definitely something valuable to have on hand. That isn't going to prevent people from using drugs, it's not going to treat addiction. So, I mean, expanding kind of our our treatment services is also really important. Um, We have two really good medications that treat uh, opioid use disorder. And those are still really inaccessible to most people. And primarily, methadone, which is actually the gold standard medicine, it's something that has been FDA approved for this since the 70s. Um, it's a drug that's back from the 1930s. The majority of people in the country can't access that. And so, I mean, we have millions of people with opioid use disorder. Probably like 80% of them at least could benefit from methadone, um, something like that, give or take. We have, I mean, a few hundred thousand people are able to access this. And so that's really a problem. And that's not just in terms of kind of the other issues with healthcare access, like insurance and everything, but the like substance use treatment industry is really problematic for the same kind of capitalistic reasons for the most part, but also because like legitimate treatments are usually. Come with tons of oversight or are regulated so that people don't want to offer them, that kind of thing. Um, But you can get your Medicare to cover like goat petting um, at a farm for 30 days much more easier than you can for like uh, evidence based medical treatment. Um, And so, I mean, I think those are like some of the biggest steps that we can take. Obviously, there's a lot of other things people can do. And I think the concept of harm reduction in general. Which is very controversial in addiction, even though harm reduction is like most of modern medicine, uh, at least when it comes to adults, like ev- everything we do is kind of harm mitigation, harm reduction. Um, anything that kind of makes people like a little bit safer, prevents an overdose, prevents an infection. Uh, I mean, one of the most common things I see in the hospital is these very preventable infections. Uh, someone spends two months in the ICU, ends up having to get new valves put in their heart. Um, or, or ends up dying and it could have been prevented with a two cent clean syringe and an alcohol swab. Um, and so not blocking those, getting those things out there is gonna make a big difference. Things like fentanyl test strips, all of that. And for whatever reason those just remain so controversial and like politically charged and there at the end of the day there's no reason for it. There's such good evidence behind all of those things. And we're seeing, I mean 70,000 Americans die a year from fentanyl overdoses, over 100,000 die from drug overdoses. Like All of these things are are preventable. Everyone has to know somebody at this point who has been affected by this personally. Um, And those numbers being so large are only the people who are dying from overdoses. I mean, the people who end up in the hospital for two months or or survive their overdose and have horrible complications don't get counted in there, too. So, yeah, it's a really big problem. I think just kind of like thinking about it, talking about it, whatever we can do to make this a little less like of a charged and controversial topic.
0: is always good. The last kind of bucket or the cherry on top. I mean, you you just did a beautiful job summarizing so many, you know, complexities in this, but the stigma, right? The stigma and and how that stigma feeds into the politicization of addiction, treatment, substance use disorders, mental health. Um, You know, my, my brother had, you know, unmanaged or poorly managed bipolar disorder. And he self-medicated with a variety of, of things until he died by suicide. And, you know, I mean, it's 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 just a very complex and, and unaddressed issue. But I think the stigma also plays into the misinformation. So Ryan, you noted that you're seeing patients where fentanyl is the preferred medication in a therapeutic you know administered by a physician and, and monitored but they're opposed to it because they've been told that that's the one that kills people and so there's there's so much misinformation about opioids and opioid use and a lot of it has been exacerbated by media by social media by by um, criminal justice agencies by TV shows um so I wanna you know maybe maybe just correct some of the most glaring misinformation, um, about, about fentanyl in particular, but then, you know, these shows like dope sick and painkiller, which really kind of bring more attention on, on Oxycontin in particular, but the opioid epidemic, um, more generally and, and maybe, you know, what's the harm kind of, You know, to society at large, um, you know, with kind of the the undue or exaggerated attention. Not that I think these stories are not important, but I think it's hard for people to parse out what's real, what's credible and what is um, sensationalized.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think we already kind of touched on the fact that uh, like not everyone who uses these substances gets addicted. People who use them even long term don't necessarily get addicted um, and when it comes to, I mean, even like using IV, heroin, or fentanyl, estimates are that only like 15% or pe- so of people might end up with a substance use disorder long term. And so I think that's an important place to start is just that these aren't like evil substances. People who use them aren't kind of like extreme rock bottom. They're not out to get you. And this idea that people who use drugs are like out to hurt people, that drug dealers are intentionally contaminating stuff. The drug dealers are just meeting a demand. I mean, you live in a capitalist society, they're trying to make money. People want to buy opioids. There were no opioids, so they started replacing them with fentanyl. it's it's not a malicious thing at all, uh, and so that that is another problem. And I think that this idea that like drug users are bad people and out to like hurt everyone has carried over into this idea that things like fentanyl now you can touch fentanyl and overdose, you can be near someone who used fentanyl and overdose, um, it can just like get into the air and that kind of thing. And that seems to be like the most popular and pervasive myth in recent years. I mean, definitely all of these. Uh, stereotypes about people who use drugs have been pervasive for for a long time and remain so. But I think that has been particularly harmful. And I don't. It's so so like broadly encompassing. It's so prevalent in society at this point. Um, and this idea, because so many people are dying from fentanyl, it is more potent. It's easy to overdose on. Um, I think everyone's probably seen a picture of like those little vials with pieces of powder in it. And you have like your morphine, your fentanyl, and your carfentanil, and it's just one grain of sand is enough to kill you of Um, And that's not even necessarily true from like a biochemical perspective, but certainly, I mean, it is more potent. But these drugs don't get into your system unless you ingest them. And so, like someone who uses drugs is not dirty; they're not a contaminant. And one thing that I've seen where this is a problem is that people who actually overdosed um, do not get resuscitated. And so people are scared to go near them. Um, and beyond that, I mean, people treat them differently out in society, that kind of thing. But it is a big problem when no one wants to go near someone who's overdosed or waste time putting on like a hazmat suit and that kind of thing. Um, and I mean, I wish people wanted to put on PPE during the pandemic, but they, they will when someone has an overdose. And there's it is like a reason behind that because there are fentanyl patches. Fentanyl can be delivered through the skin, but it's not the same as fentanyl that's on the street. It's a completely different chemical product, um, and it's incredibly ineffective. Uh, and so, I think this like pseudoscience plays into the misinformation. There was this event in Moscow in 2002, I want to say, where there was a bunch of hostages being held in a theater. And the Russian army pumped something in through the duct system, and like everyone died. Most of the hostages actually died, um, and of the survivors, days later when they got out of Russia, um, they were able to test them and their clothing and detected some fentanyl analogs. So people think that there was fentanyl gas pumped in, and fentanyl does not aerosolize. The Russians have said that there was something else involved. Um, So again, this is like some little nugget of truth has played up into this widespread moral panic, and we're now seeing, I mean, people focus all of their attention on this. This is what gets the most media coverage, rather than talking about the fact that like we could be spending this all of these opioid settlement funds on things like Narcan, um, and they're going towards fentanyl-proof gloves and hazmat gear, and people are now getting charged and incarcerated for like exposing someone to fentanyl when it's really just like they were pulled over and they had drugs on them. Which, again, regardless of whether you think that that should be criminalized or not, uh, the fentanyl exposure part is completely made up. Um, and so, we've seen Congress, the White House, um, multiple state legislatures, state attorney generals have focused significant time, energy, and funding on this idea. And it's not real Um, and so i mean that's a big problem and as overdoses keep going up every year they're not getting better uh, and we're not doing any of the things that we know could work that's that's how i see misinformation being bad
1: i mean so many of the things that you're describing are things that are not just specific to opioids right i mean misinformation little seeds of truth being taken out of context pseudoscience chemophobia i mean all the things Um, So we definitely have uh, an uphill battle (laughs) uh, ahead of us. Um, Dr. Ryan Marino, thank you so much for your time, your work on the front lines, your expertise, all the work you're doing to raise awareness about this. Um, You are just incredible. And we're so grateful for your time today. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you both. This was great.
0: Yeah, thank thank you, Ryan, and I. And I hope that you know this provided our listeners with some insight about the complexities of the opioid epidemic, some of the challenges we have in in addressing stigma regarding substance use and substance misuse, and you know maybe reframe your thoughts about people who maybe have unwittingly fallen into um, you know dependency related to some of these opioids. So thank you again, Ryan. This was was such an invaluable conversation. And to our listeners, we hope you learned a thing or two. Please make sure to follow Dr. Ryan Marino um, on Twitter slash X at Ryan Marino and on YouTube at RyanMD. And if you want to continue to support our efforts, please consider um, checking our website out. We have a donation page, a Venmo account, a coffee page, and we have some fun, snarky merch. So if you want to get your, you're sack of chemicals shirt. I think that's pretty apt for this episode. Um, feel free to pick that up on our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. Um, we also do have our free weekly newsletter subscription that's on our Substack. That's the scipod.substack.com. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our social channels. Our handle is at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.